As you're taking your seat, if you would, please take God's Word and turn to Isaiah 33. Uh, it's in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it in there. Isaiah 33, as we continue to walk through the prophecy of Isaiah together. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap and is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert in Bashan and Carmel. Shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. <clears throat> the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we prepare to receive his word. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, would you give us ears to hear all that you have to say this morning? Would you give us hearts that are ready to respond to it? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. All this we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. You can't schedule revival, but you can pray for it. You can't schedule revival, but you can reform your heart in your life. You can't schedule revival, though plenty of churches have tried. And perhaps they were simply trying to pray for it, to hope for it. Perhaps they knew God's people needed to repent every day. As Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, and revival happens in a church, in a community, when God's people begin to take their repentance seriously. Now, there are other factors. Extraordinary prayer, renewed emphasis on the gospel of grace in all areas of ministry. Articles are written about these things. But the end result is still renewed people. People whose hearts are made new by God's grace. I don't tell my conversion story very often because, frankly, I like the attention too much. But my story is pretty simple. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church every Sunday. Can I remember a day when I didn't know Jesus is my Savior? Actually, yes, but I only realized that in hindsight. You see, my pastors and Sunday school teachers didn't do anything wrong. They taught me the Bible. They taught me about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. They preached the gospel to me. So did my parents. One day, after a thousand sermons, the Spirit broke through, opened my eyes, opened my ears, opened my heart. I was 13, and I just realized that Brother Jerry was talking to me. I was a sinner. I needed Jesus. My mostly compliant nature, my rule-following tendencies were not enough to meet God's holy standard. My respectable sins, which obviously weren't as bad as other people's, we're still sin, cosmic treason against a holy creator and a loving God. I still needed Jesus. So when they gave the invitation and played just as I am, I resisted. It took me six weeks or so to finally admit that God was calling me. Don't be like me. Don't resist. Don't be unwilling. Isaiah 30 verse 15, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or repentance, in rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Don't harden your heart. Don't, don't do that. Hear his gracious call. Isaiah 30 verse 18, our call to worship. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Are you ready to turn to him, to wait for him, to trust him, to turn his promise into your prayer? As you see in Isaiah 33, verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. You can't schedule revival but you can schedule your own repentance. You can ask God to be your arm, your strength every morning. That kind of humility, awareness of your need. It may not delay further purification in your life down the road. 
but it surely leads to God's promised blessings. That's what we see this morning. It leads to our first point, the prayer of a humble people. The prayer of a humble people. You see it in verses 1 through 9. Uh, Excuse me. Verses 1 through 9 seem to be Isaiah praying on behalf of the righteous remnant of Israel. And what do you not see in this prayer? You don't see the complacency from last week. Those who say, nothing bad will ever happen to us. We trusted in mighty Egypt, who wasn't that mighty, and she will save us. Even though she had failed to do that before, if you look at Isaiah 20, you see people here who know they can't trust Egypt or themselves or anything else. They must trust God. They know they need God. They know he will deliver. Verse 1's a little confusing. Is it a prediction? I think it's actually more a a preview of what you end up seeing in verses 3 and 4. It's the confidence that God will arise. He will strike down the nation that's destroying other nations, that's destroying Israel, threatening to do so. Probably talking about Assyria, but they never name her because these words apply to any mighty nation that thinks she can do whatever she pleases as long as she wants. Any nation that thinks she will simply destroy and keep on destroying. And as much as arrogant nations need that rebuke, humble, defeated nations need the encouragement. Do you think Ukrainian Christians might be comforted if they read verse 1? Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none is betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Just to be clear, no, I'm not trying to make predictions about short-term or medium-term political ramifications. But this verse brought comfort back then to Isaiah in Israel. So they make it their plea to God in verses 1 through 4. That plea, it continues in verse 2. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Echoing the words, the promise of Isaiah 30 verse 18. They wait, they long for God's grace. They ask for him to be their arm, their strength every morning. Because morning was when armies were at their most vulnerable. Maybe it's when we are most vulnerable as well. Then again, maybe you're more vulnerable to Satan's attacks in the evening. Maybe that's the time for you to repeat this prayer, to ask God to be your salvation in a time of trouble. Bottom line is humble people know they need God and they have no problem asking for his help. And that humility can lead to confidence, not in ourselves, but in God's provision. Look at verses 3 and 4. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. In Numbers 10.35, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, set out before Israel in battle. And Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. Verse 3 is probably echoing that. They're confident. That the God of the conquest, the God who drove out the other nations from Canaan, that he is still able to defend them today. He's not changed. And there's an implied plea in these words. Be our arm, that's verse 2, be our arm, our strength, our salvation. Because we know you can. 
if you want to. That last part's important. If you want to, we don't always know what God wills, desires for the events of our lives and others. And our prayers are not bending God's will to match ours. Shorter Catechism says, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Because He's a God of mercy. You see, the best prayers remind the prayer who he or she is praying to. Because it makes the distress we're in more bearable. That's what you see next in this prayer. You see praise for who God is, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of our times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's not reminding God who God is. No, this is reminding the prayer who God is. It's like Isaiah is counseling himself and his listeners through danger and distress. Because God dwells on high, He alone can bring justice and righteousness. Whether He brings it in part right now or whether He brings it in full one day. But either way, because of that, He will be our stability, our abundance of salvation, our wisdom and fear, reverence, our, our, our fear, reverence and awe of Him. That will be our treasure. You see, when God matters more to us, than anything else in life. Then we find true stability, true wisdom, true treasure, the kind that none but Zion's children know. When God matters more to us than anything else, the other things are able to fall in their proper place. When you get the big rocks in there, then the other ones fit in properly. All the things that scare us, the things that make us angry. When God matters more than anything else, you might say, then revival begins to happen. Because what is revival? It's when God's people see themselves for what they really are, when they take God at His word, when they long for His word, they long for Him. They know their need of Him. It's when God's people start to pray humble prayers like this one. Do you want revival? Then pray for your own humility. Embrace yourself for what comes next. I think verses 7 through 9 are still part of this same humble prayer. It's, it's an acknowledgement of Israel's dire circumstances. It's an implied plea, once again, for God to deliver them out of this, out of the carnage, which is partially of their own making. The crying that you see instead of peace, the covenants that are broken instead of life and commerce and travel on the highways, the cities all over the country just withering away. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's as if Isaiah is saying, oh God, fix us. Fix what's broken in us. Regardless of what else you do to others, fix us. Be our arm, our strength, our salvation, our stability. Because if you don't, no one else can. No one else will. That's the prayer of a humble people. It leads to a surprising answer. That's our second point. The answer of a holy God. The answer of a holy God, which you see in verses 10 through 16. If you were Israel, 
or the Ukraine or any beleaguered and weary people of God, then you might like the beginning of God's answer. Verses 10 through 12. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. I finally watched all of the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't expect a medal, but in the final one, there's this scene where Thanos is doing big bad guy things, and then all of a sudden, good guys appear. Lots of them. In fact, all of them. It seems that it's every mighty warrior, every superhero from every single movie shows up at once. I'll let you guess what happens next if you haven't already seen it, but what's more important is what you see here. God arises. And when God arises, the enemy scatters because it's as if God possesses every single superpower, even the ones you haven't heard of. He's packing some serious heat. And all the enemy has is chaff, tumbleweeds, and stubble. Might say they brought knives to the gunfight and they're going to get burned. As we've said before, Jesus wins and we win too if we're in Christ Jesus. Amen? But, but that isn't all that our holy God has to say here, is it? Verse 13 Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. It's everyone listen up, is what he's saying. Near or far, God's people or not, listen up. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And then verses 15 and 16, they detail God's holy standard for us even more. But it's a standard none of us can meet on our own. I mean, come on. None of us are perfectly righteous in all of our speech, in all of our actions. None of us are 100% free from greed and unfairness. We've all listened a few seconds too long to gossip, maybe this week. I mean, I've never robbed a bank. I've never done things like that. But have I rooted for the bad guys who do in Ocean's Eleven or whatever, instead of, as it says, shutting my eyes from looking at evil? Have we enjoyed sin in our heart just a little bit, thinking about it, if nothing else? You see, if we take this to heart, then we too should be trembling like the sinner's in Zion. And remember, Zion is God's throne, his city, code name for Jerusalem. But the sinners there are afraid too because God's judgment is not simply for his enemies. What does 1 Peter 4.17 say? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And you might hear that and say, wait a minute, is that fair? Why isn't God more focused on all the evil out there? Because, my friends, we know where salvation is found. We have nothing to fear in admitting our own unholiness. When people say things like, oh, the church is so full of hypocrites who preach one thing and do another, we need to say amen. Amen. We know our sin. We hate our sin. 
And our prayer is that we would more and more see our sin so that we might also see our Savior who has met every need we have and more. Who cares if it's fair when God has shown us grace? You see, God's grace is profoundly unfair, but in a good way. We deserve wrath and we found grace. Better yet, grace found us. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. We have it so good, we must never forget that. And you see, when God sends judgment, we don't need to fear, because judgment for the world is merely purification for those who are in Christ. When fire hits those who don't believe in Christ, it consumes them because they're stubble, they're chaff. When fire hits us, it refines us like gold. Because we found refuge in Christ, he's taken the, the sting out of whatever trials, whatever fire might come our way. And think for a moment what all this meant for Israel. Israel was God's people, the chosen nation. But not all of that nation was praying, verse 2, be our arm every morning. We wait for you. Be gracious to us. Some of them were trusting in Egypt. Her horses, her multitudes, all of those things. So God had to send judgment. And even the righteous remnant of Israel got caught in some of the crossfire. Maybe the hardships in their life weren't their fault. Not all of them anyway. And maybe they were. Maybe they are for us. But what's more important is that we seek His face, that we repent, that we pray Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Yes, sometimes God's people are caught in the crossfire as he rules and judges the entire world. Back when we looked at Isaiah 10, I read this line from Ralph Davis. It's stuck with me ever since. The Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations. And while ruling the nations, he never forgets his church. He never forgets his church. Church is one player in the midst of a global theater. God is always doing 10,000 things, and we may be aware of three of them. That's from John Piper. And yet, he never forgets us. Just because he is still allowing global dramas to play out, to sanctify us, does not mean he has forgotten us. His holiness might be greater than we realize. We're jolted out of our seats when we come to verse 14 and beyond. But His grace is also greater. Greater than our sin. Greater than our unholiness. Our humility is needed. Our humility is required for salvation. But our humility may not prevent further purification in our lives. And sometimes that purification is painful. But that purification cannot separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It can't separate us from the great inheritance that awaits us. And that's what we see in our final point this morning. Number three, we see the beauty of our promised home. The beauty of our promised home in verses 17 through 24. You know, maybe God's people thought they could just skip verses 10 to 16. Let's go straight to paradise. Verses 17 to 24, eh, sorry, but paradise will come. 
Paradise will come. Verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Remind me to start using this as a benediction. But Isaiah is looking to the future once again. One day a king more glorious than David will take his throne. He will, it will be breathtaking. The fairest of 10,000 in his Kingdom will be almost as pretty, a land that stretches afar. I think of the, the plain that's north of Monument, east of I-25, after a light snowfall, the way it just glistens. Maybe you think of the sunrise hitting Pikes Peak, sunrise, sunset, whatever does it for you, only better. Because there will also be no more enemies in this land, no more enemies to terrify us. It's what verses 18 and 19 say. And you might wonder, why does it mention no foreigners in verse 19? When we know that God's kingdom will include every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Because for 8th century B.C. Israel, the presence of foreigners equaled oppression. It meant that God had not yet delivered them from their enemies. He is using a present day symbol back then to communicate a timeless truth to all of God's people in every age about our final destiny. No enemies is what he's saying. No enemies. Peace. Peace in our time. Only truly. As verse 20 says, Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. The city of feasts, with all of the past triumphs that those feasts represented, Passover and all of God's greatest hits, with all of the fellowship that happened at those feasts, when all of God's people came together at once in joy and in harmony, it represented what would be a tent with God's presence, a gathering that could never be moved, an unshakable city on a hill, an impenetrable fortress, where God's people could rest in safety. And yes, it would be a beautiful homeland as well. Verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Why no ships? Why no ships on the beautiful shores of Zion. Because what, is it, what does it represent? They have all they need, milk, honey, healing, and more. They have no need for shipping. They never have to worry about the global supply chain ever again. And no enemies will exist, so they certainly won't be able to launch an attack from the shore. No ships, that's what it means. Because the Lord, the judge and king, he will have conquered his enemies. He will have protected his people. His law in that day will be obeyed because it will be written on our hearts. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because it will all take place in the new heavens and new earth. And then you might wonder, what's this in verse 23? All this good news and then this weird line in verse 23. Well, it's actually building on the, the shipping imagery from before. It says, your cords hang loose. They, they can't hold the mast of the ship up. In other words, Zion is a ship that's headed for shipwreck on her own. She's helpless on her own. But what does the rest of the verse say? 
she still divides the prey, the spoils, the good stuff that's left after the war, which has already been won. As I said, Jesus wins, and we win too. Not because we're mighty, but because King Jesus lets us ride his coattails to victory. All the way to victory, all the way to glory, all the way to the promised land where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Verse 24, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. You know, sometimes we begin to think good things like this will never come. Sometimes when hard times linger, we begin to think suffering will never end. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Our hope is supposed to grow as we endure hardship. And if that's not happening for you, then then you need to ask God to fulfill His promises to you. Because Romans 5 says, we know, we know, we don't think, we don't have an inkling, no, we know that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And if you don't feel that, let's be clear, Your religion is not all about feelings, but Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole book called The Religious Affections. If you don't feel that, if it is not becoming real to you, if you don't sense it to be true in your life, then pray that God would prove his promises to be true. Be our arm every morning. Be my arm this morning, right now. Be my arm, my strength, my salvation, my stability, my hope. Let my eyes see the king and his beauty, even if for now it's a pale reflection of the eventual reality. Show me your glory, O God, as Moses once said. Show me enough to get through. The normal expectation is that you will endure hardship so that your hope will grow so that heaven will feel more real to you. And at the same time, your assurance of God's love should be more near. And that is not escapism. That's realism. Because this world is not our home. And it was never meant to be. One of my favorite podcasts had a guest on recently. It's a PCA minister who is suffering from cancer. And before they started talking about the topic at hand, the reason they had him on the show, they they asked him, you know, how's... How's your cancer treatment going? And he said something almost paradoxical. He said, you know, his wife and he, they, they, they realized they needed to stop expecting earth to be heaven. Stop looking for our fullest joys on earth, our favorite vacation spot on the coast of whatever state it was. Let heaven be heaven. Let earth be earth, our temporary home. We need to do this. Two things happened. As expected, heaven heaven began to seem closer, more real. He's got cancer. The end is closer. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's two. Maybe it's five. But he also said, food tastes better. Hugs are more delightful. The, The colors of the trees are brighter. Because I love this world less, because I need it less, 
because I love heaven more. I'm able to appreciate the things of this world even more than I did before. You see, that's what it looks like when God refines us, when he sanctifies us, when he makes us more like Jesus. We grow more hopeful. We long for heaven more. And we enjoy life right here more. Because this is only the beginning. Things get better. There's a book I had to read in college, Things Fall Apart. I actually had to Google it to remember what it was about. It's by an African author about the destructiveness of colonial rule in Africa, essentially. But, but how many of us think that's the way the world works? Things fall apart. Christian, things get better. Don't live with half a worldview. Though the outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Jesus wins and you will see Jesus. You will see the king in his beauty. Your attitude, your circumstances right now, they might be humble. You may have painful purification ahead, but his promises will come true. And that is enough to brighten our day, to keep us going, knowing that you will see the king in all his glorious beauty. Love this world less, and you'll enjoy this world more, knowing that the best is yet to come. It only gets better, friends. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are good, and what you do is good. Father, would you make us heavenly-minded, knowing the certainty of the inheritance, the beauty that we will one day see. And in so doing, would you make us more earthly good? Would you help us to see the goodness of your creation? Would you help us appreciate it, even though it's temporary? And would you help us to be more loving, more kind, more generous, more hopeful to those around us? We ask all this in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.